Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. If you're an avid reader of our Inside Intercom blog, you know we've written a lot about what goes into the transition to people management, and the challenges that come from not just being on the front lines building product, but actually building the careers of those you work with. So this week, we're absolutely thrilled to bring on one of the foremost thinkers in engineering management and someone many of us at Intercom consider a role model, Mark Hedlund, who's joined by Intercom engineering manager Brian Scanlon in our San Francisco studio. Mark's been in engineering management since the mid-90s and has worked in VP roles at leading companies like Stripe and Etsy, and he opened up to Brian about how he enabled so many engineers there to flourish under his direction. Even if you were the best coder on the team, the overall expert on the team's focus, five minutes before you were promoted, the moment you're promoted, I encourage you no longer to be that expert. He's also been a founder, first at Wisabe, a personal finance company, and most recently at Skyliner. Just last month, Mark broke the news that Skyliner will be shutting down in mid-July, and he was refreshingly open about the lessons he's learned in the process. Trying that out and seeing that the market didn't respond as positively as we wanted, and seeing that like the premise of it was not clear to enough of the people that were naturally in the market, it was like, okay, you know, we gave this a shot. We thought that this would be compelling. It was compelling to a few, but not to enough. Mark's also done a great deal of work opening doors for people of all backgrounds to get into tech. He's on the board of directors over at Code2040 and has more than a few constructive thoughts on how our industry as a whole can do better. The conversation is never about, oh, well, we would be willing to pay people a dramatically higher starting bonus or a higher salary, or we would be willing to completely change our interview process to make sure that it is not biased towards people who are already dramatically overrepresented in our industry. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, subscribe to our show over on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, we'd be forever grateful if you shot us a rating or a review. It really helps new folks find our show, and we appreciate all the feedback we can get. And now, let's hop into the studio with Mark Hedlund and Brian Scanlon. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So many of us at Intercom genuinely look up to you, so it's great to have you here. What's been the response been like since the recent public announcement that Skyliner will be shutting down? Yeah, it's uh, it's been funny. I mean, we have a great group of customers. The most common response from our customers has been, oh gosh, I just feel bad that I didn't help promote you more. And, you know, what more could you ask for from a customer that they would take responsibility for your company shutting down? Like, it's, it was clearly not their fault. They were the ones that were, that were paying us. So mm-hmm. most of the response has been like, oh, that's a shame. And, you know, I, I, I wish this would continue to exist. The product was, I think, in a lot of ways, like people who got into it were very excited about it, but not enough people really knew why it was valuable that they would start to build on top of it. Um, People who had been in a much larger company and came and saw this product where the premise was, we'll set up a bunch of infrastructure for you, we'll make it very easy for you to safely deploy changes and make it so that anybody on your team can deploy those changes quickly and easily. Like that premise is really appealing if you have not had those things in a previous job. Like, oh God, you know, we didn't set things up well at the beginning. Only one person was able to deploy. Like everybody else had to go to that person. If they took vacation, it was a disaster. Then you're like, oh, wow, this is so much better. But if you're just starting out for the first time or you don't 
really sort of appreciate some of the qualities there, the the marketing pitch might not be very compelling. Like, avoid those things that you will wish you will have avoided in the future. Um, you know, it's like this very sort of strange sentence construction about uh, if you can go forward into the future, this is something you will have wanted to have done. You know, so mostly it was people who had been through bad experiences who were really positive about that. But, you know, it just wasn't a wide enough market to support the company. We also had this sort of unfortunate thing that Amazon released a very similar product, this product CodeStar. And I, I sort of laugh about it because it's like their fourth or fifth product in this area. And I don't think it sort of achieves what our customers were looking for. I, I, I know it doesn't because they're now trying to move to that product and, and saying like, no, 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 this isn't it. I think it's... It's a bad signal from Amazon to the startup community. It sort of says if you have any success whatsoever, you know, you're at risk of being knocked off by Amazon. So, you know, I certainly wouldn't encourage entrepreneurs to do what we did and build on top of AWS solely. Um, while I think that was a good technical decision, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it as a business decision. And how did it affect you personally, the yeah. shutting down of, or the, the pending shutting down of Scott Liner? Um, well, you know, I've I've been through this a couple times before. Uh, I have had startups where, you know, it was sort of a bad idea from the start or we didn't really do market research or we didn't really think it through. And those, you know, those you're like, oh, gosh, boy, I better do some of that market research next time or whatever. With Wasabi, which was the the startup I worked on for the longest, it was definitely a, a passion project where I felt like, you know, if if this works, we'll make the world just a little bit better. Like people's stress about money is so huge. If I can just like lower that by even a little bit, that's such a huge possible impact on the world. Um, and then, you know, our support queue would reinforce that where we would hear from people, oh, I just paid off my first credit card and I just bought my first house or, you know, I'm going through this bad time and this is the only product that's helping me right now. And so we would read those support messages and be like, yep, all right, well, we'll come to work tomorrow. Like, you know, what we're doing clearly matters. Um, you know, with Skyliner, it was much more like we saw a market opportunity. We felt like it was a practical product that had good possible impacts for startups. It was a way to get going quickly. It wasn't like, you know, making lives easier for startups is not a change the world proposition. It was what can we build that might give us independence and might allow us to uh, establish a market position from which we could grow. And so trying that out and seeing that the market didn't respond as positively as we wanted and seeing that, like, the premise of it was not clear to enough of the people that were naturally in the market, it was like, okay, you know, we gave this a shot. We thought that this would be compelling. It was compelling to a few but not to enough so we should wind it down. Like, let's let's not spend more of our time on this. Let's not spend more money on this. It was more more like a rational decision and less like an emotional decision. Um, with Wasabi, it hit me really hard. Like, I was so sad when, when I had to close it down. With, with this one, I was like, okay, we gave it a go. We thought this was a good idea. We put, we, you know, we did our best work. We, you know, I learned how to be a salesperson, which was hilarious, um, you know, but uh, it, it was more, it was more that it was not, it was not like, uh, this is tragic. It was like, okay, clearly the market is not responding to this. So, you know, it was easier. And, you know, we, as a team, we got a lot of interest in 
you know, companies that wanted us to join. We found a great place to land. We're really happy. We're, we're joining MailChimp. We're really happy about that. Uh, the people that we talked to were all really supportive. So it, it was, to some extent, an easier choice. It sounds like the denial phase wasn't too long then. Uh, well... Uh, there was certainly a long phase where I was convinced that I could be a salesperson. <laughs> so that might be denial or something. Yeah, I think I think it's true that we, you know, Dan McKinley, who's on the founding team, is a, a, a wonderfully rational, observant person who, you know, will call it as he sees it. And he was like, okay, this is not working. And then we would try this other thing and be like, all right, there are signs of hope. Can we build on that sign of hope? No, we cannot build. Okay, great. So what are we doing here? And so I think, you know, he and I, as we were going through it, we would start to say the same sentence in Slack at the same time of like, well, this clearly implies this for like the future. Okay, well, then we should clearly do this. And we we're very much in sync about it. So that made it easier. You know, if you have two people who are really divergent or three people who are really divergent, it can make it a lot harder. Okay, so after Wasabi shut down, you wrote a refreshingly open retrospective <laughs> about what went wrong. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the lines that sticks out is that focus on what really matters, making users happy with your product as quickly as you can and helping them as much as you can after that. If you do those better than anyone else out there, you'll win. Do you think that still applies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the, the lead up to that quote in the post is that there were these very hoped for positive outcomes from using the product that if you really understood your money and if you invested a good amount of time in getting set up, that your your long-term outcomes would be much better. And those are those are valuable, but it took so much effort for a new person to get to the point where they could start to see those benefits that somebody had to be really very much in need and really successful at getting going in the product before they would start to see those benefits. Our main competitor, Mint, uh, did nothing like that. They were just like, put in a username, put in your bank password. Oh, here are a bunch of graphs. And like immediately there was this almost sort of endorphic rush of like, you know, oh, wow, I can see everything now. Like before it was just numbers. Now it's pictures. Like I can clearly see it. And that feeling was one that I think really benefited them. Um, I think they ignored and continue to this day to ignore the long-term benefits that we had hoped we would be able to get from, from Wasabi. But that kind of didn't matter because for them, like that first experience was so strong and so positive. People felt such uncertainty around their finances that like having clarity – was such a, a positive emotional response from that that first thing. Whereas our first thing was like, oh, you know, your your bank sync didn't work. Like, not really the same positive emotional response that, that we hoped would be the case. So I think that that first step of help somebody really fast, like do something really, really quickly that benefits them. Every time I see a company that does that well, they have a shot at long-term success. So like one of the reasons I joined Stripe was like, the online demos that gave you this immediate, you know, euphoric feeling of, I can charge a credit card. Like, you know, it's such a potentially complicated, imposing, off-putting process. And they do such a good job at making it not that. And then, you know, you have these longer-term things of, like, complicated things like risk management, where 
you might be the best at risk management, but if you're terrible at that first experience, no one will ever know that you're the best at risk management. So having both sides of that be really well executed at Stripe means, okay, yes, this is a company that has the potential to be really great in the long term. If you have only one of them, you're not going to get there. Mint, I think, did really, really well at the first. I'd like to think we did okay at the second with Wasabi, but only one of them doesn't get you there. You have to have both. So I think the companies that focus on these kind of short-term wins of like, you know, we get that first experience, the out-of-box experience to be great, and then the thing breaks down on third use, like that's not going to get you there. Like you have to have both sides work. And there are too many products that only focus on one. Okay, and move on to something a little bit more positive. <laughs> um, so I recently saw on Twitter that you were involved in a somewhat successful outcome where you placed interns whose internships had fallen through due to a company falling into financial difficulty. So I guess, why did you take action here? And how come you were in a position to be able to take this kind of action? Um, it's not yet a positive outcome. I think it will be. The This all just happened this week. So the group of interns you're talking about is still like going through interviews and stuff like that. But I knew from a couple of my past jobs that oftentimes tech industry internships get decided like in the fall of the year before the, the summer when they're actually going to occur. It's like this longer interview process. People will go and talk to a bunch of companies and they'll choose one and then months later they'll show up in the summer and, and actually do the internship. And this was a circumstance where a group of interns heard that they were not going to be able to attend their internship like a couple weeks before they were planning to show up. One of the interns in this group was somebody that I had met through Code 2040, where I'm on the board of directors. Uh, she had asked for an introduction to this company. I knew people there. I introduced her. They interviewed her. They decided to give her an offer. I helped her negotiate the offer. So we had had like a, a long back and forth about her process of choosing this internship. Mm -hmm. So when she got the news that she was not going to be able to go, she wrote to me and she said, hey, this just happened. What do you think? Can you help me with this? And because I knew some of the people at the company, I said, oh, I heard this happen. I'm, I'm sorry this happened. And they were like, what? And it was just, you know, just coming out. Like it was just very fresh news that it was, that it was happening. So as a result, I went to a couple of Slacks that I'm in, which have a bunch of engineering leaders in them. And I said, does anybody have any openings in their internship program I just heard from this person? And fortunately, a bunch of people were like, oh, wow, that sounds awful. Let me see what I can do. So we were able to get our group of, I think it was like 10 or 12 companies pretty quickly within the course of a few hours. And so that was great. Mm -hmm. And she said, by the way, I know one of the other interns. Could I introduce you to that person? And I said, sure. Like, if you know any of the other interns, let me know. Like, I'm happy to pass on this list. And then I heard from all of them. <laughs> and they were all like, oh, uh, we heard that you helped this person. Do you have anything you can do? I don't know what to do. I've, you know, One of them was like, I signed a lease. Another one was like, this matters a huge amount for my income. Like, is there anything you can do to help? So I was like, well, I, so actually I, I thought about this case that had happened a number of years ago. Uh, Stuart Butterfield is now the CEO of Slack had been running this company called Glitch, and they decided that they were going to shut down the company. It was a game company. And he got on, I think it was Twitter, or maybe it was blogs or something. He got on and said, we have to shut down. I have a fantastic team. They need jobs. 
I will, you know, tell me what you need in order to evaluate them and I will get you that thing. And he was very public and open about it. And it's really unusual that that people do that as well as I think he did in that case. So I thought about that and I was like, eh, let's go to Twitter. Like, <laughs> so I went to Twitter and I said, hey, I have, I'm trying to play some interns. If you can consider these people in these locales, can you let me know? And I got a bunch of responses. And I wouldn't say it went viral, but within a certain community, it was well retweeted. And because I write about engineering management, a bunch of people follow me for that on Twitter. When I'm not ranting about politics, like I occasionally post about engineering management. And so that, you know, a number of engineering managers saw it and responded to me and wrote to me. So so I put together a list of all the interns and where they were from and their resumes and what they were looking for. And I just sent out this mass email to, it's turned out to be about 65 companies. And so that went really well. How was I in the position to do it? I, I mean, I've talked about engineering management online. So as a result, there are some people who are engineering managers and saw it. I think it was just like, People were like, oh, wow, that sounds awful. <laughs> like, I'm happy to help. What can I do? And, you know, the fact that it was this group of interns who had already been interviewed and accepted meant that there was probably a good chance that they were good engineers. So it all worked out. I don't think you have to be in a special position to do something like that. Like, you can just say, like, hey, this thing is going on. I want to help. Can you give me some information or some help? And if... You know, it can be anything. Like one of the things I liked during the political season here in the U.S. in January, there was somebody who said, hey, you know how you start a protest? You say there's a protest at this place at this time and then you've started a protest. <laughs> and like all you have to do is just post it and then like there is one. <laughs> so I think in this case it was like, hey, these people need help. Here's the email address to write, and that was all that was needed. It was like 140 characters. Like you, don't, you don't need to do much. And I think you know people were willing to help. Would they be willing to help again and again and again? Maybe not. But hopefully that's not the situation. Like hopefully it's something that's rare and doesn't come up all that often. So. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So changing topic a little, what sort of advice would you give to an engineer moving over to a management or team lead role for the first time? Uh, should they step away from the code base entirely? Uh, and like, what have you seen work well uh, yeah. for folks uh, making this transition? 
Uh, so I wrote a whole blog post about why I thought managers should stop coding. It is one of the more popular posts I've written. It's also one of the ones that I get the most angry email about. <laughs> um, the advice I give in it is like, just stop coding, pay attention to your team, notice what's going on between people, be available to them, like make it clear that you're not like headphones on, immersed in the machine, um, make it clear that you're available for to be interrupted. Don't take on deadlines. Like your job should be to not be predictable for a shipping deadline. You should have so many things that come up that you are the person that responds to that predicting a longer-term coding contribution should be hard or impossible. And every time I say that, people are like, oh, but I got into this for the coding. <laughs> like, I like coding. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> the point of the post was I like coding too. I still enjoy coding. It is wonderfully fun to make something and see it come into existence and see it run well and have other people appreciate it. It's great. It is a different kind of a joy than I get from management. Like the post was about going to this wedding of this guy that I had worked with a number of years before and having a name tag on that just said Mark, just my first name. And the groom's father, this guy that I worked with, his father saw just the word Mark and he was like, oh, you're Mark Headland. My son's been telling me about you for years. Like you've had such a huge impact. And I was like, really? <laughs> I had no idea. And it was great. And like you, you sort of live for those things as a manager, right? You, you did something for this person that they felt improved their work life. And, you know, their, their ability to go to a job and feel good about what they did and feel good about their role and get something done, like, that's, that can be huge for people. You may not know it for a couple of years. Like, if you're lucky, you know it a couple of years from then. Most employees, like, push against their manager for promotions and raises and better projects and, like, why am I working with this other person and, like, all these things that they – need from their manager. And that can sort of define your interaction in a way where you might like never know that they think you're a good manager for quite some time. So if you're lucky, they will come to you later and say, you know what, I didn't even appreciate it at the time, but you turned out to be a great manager for me. You told me these things that have impacted me for years. And that's, that's the pleasure of it. You can't get that pleasure if you're shipping code. Mm -hmm. You are not going to be as observant about the people around you um, if you're shipping code. So I do tell people, like, step away from the projects. Like, don't schedule yourself. Don't be the authority. Don't be the expert. Like, even if you were the authority five minutes ago, you need to start putting people in the position of becoming the authority. And if they always come to you and ask, should I use Postgres for MySQL? And you say, well, duh, you know, this is the answer <laughs> to that then they don't ever learn from the decision. They don't ever have a chance to learn from the decision. That's a, that's a big one, like, you know, database choice. But, you know, telling them, like, well, how would you make this decision if I were not here? Like, let's say that you didn't work with me. How would you make this choice? Well, I would roll a die. Okay, bad choice. Uh, like, well, I would talk to other people who have experience with these two. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Okay, I would look at the workload that I am working on. Great. Like, this is a good – okay, now you're teaching them – how to make the decision rather than teaching them to come to you for the decision. So even if you are the best coder on the team, the overall expert on the team's focus, 
five minutes before you were promoted, the moment you're promoted, I encourage you no longer to be that expert, but instead to be training people how they can become the expert for the team and how they can be the one to have confidence in the decisions that they're making. Usually that involves not coding. Usually that involves not being the one to make the call on technical choices. Usually that involves empowering people, getting them to talk to each other, stepping out of the way, like seeing what you can do to make it their problem and their solution to choose, and you help them clarify which problem that they're going after. So both at Etsy and Stripe, you were a very influential engineering manager, and a lot of people flourished under you. As I mentioned at the start of the show, a lot of us at Intercom uh, look to you as an example for creating a healthy engineering culture. So who's influenced you on, on the way that you think about engineering culture and management? How did you get here? Oh, um, I, sh- I should have a very ready answer to that question. Um, I, I, I guess I, I would say that most of the things that I've decided to do have been based on negative examples. Like the, I told you earlier about becoming a manager at Organic. There was a period of that year that was extremely difficult emotionally for everybody there. Like everybody who was there went through a very hard time. We had a a sexual harassment complaint and the company had never dealt with that before. And most of the people in the company had never dealt with that before. So we had to figure out how to deal with it. And it was very hard. My team was very upset about how the leadership acted. And I felt a real need to protect them and to sort of make it so that they could do their job and focus and have good jobs. And, you know, that that sort of desire to kind of be protective was where some of my early good ideas came from. Those ideas would never work for me today because the situations are so much different. The industry is different. The people I'm managing are different. You have to be managing for the context you're in. But if I came up with a good idea early in my career, it was because I saw people who were unhappy and I saw people who didn't have anybody standing up for them. That can be a good teacher, too. Now, you know, I I do read books and love what I learned from past managers. One of the books that I've really enjoyed is this book, Turn Turn the Ship Around by David uh, Markhart, I think his last name is. I certainly don't agree with everything in the book, but that's kind of the point of a book, right? Like, you want, like, you know, it should challenge you. It should give you ideas. It should make you think about why you believe what you believe. He's a submarine captain, or he was a submarine captain, and he talks about this idea of pushing decision-making directly to the people who have the most information about the decision. And the great thing about the book is it's all about the language we use to talk to each other. Like, the whole book is about language. It's like... I didn't want people to say, may I do this thing? I wanted people to say, I intend to do this thing. Like he has this whole philosophy around, I'm going to make an assertive statement. Thank you for telling me that's our conversation and how much that difference matters to good management. And I think that like somebody sitting down and thinking about word choice for how managers talk to the people that they're trying to manage is great, is wonderful. Like you can learn so much from that. You might not choose his wording. But thinking about why he focused on wording choice is is a great lesson. So you've done a lot of great work enabling people of all backgrounds to get into tech and at Etsy in particular. Uh, you had some success in getting women more involved into operations and engineering roles. Um, so what should startups who want to correct diversity problems and build more representative teams do? Well, so first of all, I should say I just 
am winding down a three-person startup where the diversity was our heights. Like all three of us are white men. We all have beards. We're all experienced in the industry. Like there's just no diversity at all whatsoever between the three of us. We had a blood pact that the next person that we hired was not going to be a, a white man and certainly not a bearded white man. Uh, but we never acted on it because we never hired anybody. So we had already made a mistake, which was that our founding team was all white men. I think if a person of color, uh, somebody from an underrepresented group were to come to me and to say, what's my best chance to have a great company that's very respectful of these issues, I would say be a founder. Like the likelihood that you're going to find that in the world is really low. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to be the case because being a founder is hard and it depends on your ability to have unpredictable or no income for some period of time which is directly connected to economic privilege, which is problematic. But that's what I tell people is like, well, have you considered founding your own company? Because then you could really make it what you think it should be. If that's not the case, then the founding team should have better representation than, than we did. If that's not the case, if the founding team is, you know, like ours in some way, then, you know, I encourage people to work on it as early as possible. Like there are women I know who say, if you're more than five employees and none of them are women, you're already too late and I'm not joining your company. Like, I don't want to be first again. I don't want to be the first woman on the team again. As early as you can possibly start, like the, the downstream effects, as you have decision-making throughout the whole company, it's always going to be better. A lot of times people will say, I hear diversity matters, I'm going to focus on it, and they'll write to somebody and say like, hi. You're a black woman who's a, an engineer. I'm trying to increase the diversity of my team. Like, there's a thread right now on Twitter of, like, a bunch of people who have gotten the same message from people saying, I will never work at your team because what you just said is you care about me as a diversity number. Mm -hmm. You know, there are wonderful, talented, senior, extremely impressive people who are not white, straight men in our industry, and you can find reasons to want to work with them because they're talented, because they have great ideas, because they will push you. And if you're not talking to them about that, there's no way you're going to make progress on it. I think the other thing I would say is just like you have to make it a priority. And if, if you ask any given company, do you value diversity, they will say, yes, I completely value diversity. If you ask any given company, what would you be willing to give up in order to get diversity? People will say, oh, no, 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 we're just going to hire the best. We'll just make sure that some of those people are women or whatever. Um, the conversation is never about, oh, well, we would be willing to pay people a dramatically higher starting bonus or a higher salary, or we would be willing to completely change our interview process to make sure that it is not biased towards people who are already dramatically overrepresented in our industry. Or... We would be willing to do these things to ensure inclusion uh, within the promotion process. Like we would be willing to have descriptions of five or six or seven different success metrics, any one of which could be your focus, that would allow you as a person with a different background or different skills or different personality to succeed uh, within our company because we think that if success always looks like the same thing, it will wind up looking like white guys. And those are, those are conversations companies don't want to have. They're like, 
we value diversity. Like, we're going to work on diversity, and we're just going to make sure we hire the best. Like, that never produces good effects. Okay. So for more than five years now, you've been on the board of directors at the nonprofit Code 2040. Yeah. So what's the mission there, and how can our listeners get involved? Uh, so the mission of Code 2040 is to bring Black and Latinx engineers into Silicon Valley companies. Here's how you can get involved. I will, I will tell you an anecdote that broke my heart. 2040 had this, this program called Tech Trek, where they get a bunch of, I think it's sophomores and juniors with uh, Black and Latinx uh, backgrounds to come to Silicon Valley and just tour around about 10 large, well-known companies. So they did, uh, spent a week, went to a bunch of companies. Towards the end of the week, I went to this competition where they were presenting startup ideas they had or application ideas they had. And I was walking around, you know, talking to the students and saying, how has your week been? And they were like, I want to work at Box. I was like, Box? Cool. Okay. Like, you know, nothing against Box, but like that, like I would have expected like Twitter or like, you know, something that's like a consumer product that is more likely that everybody knows. And Box is a successful company, but it's not as well known, I would think, amongst college students where it's, I assume, not used. I was like, Box, really? Why? Nothing wrong with that, but tell me why. And, and every one of them said, we walked in here and the employees smiled at us and said hi to us. And that was not true at any other company. Wow. So what can you do <laughs> if a college-age teenage, old, whatever, black or Latinx person comes into your company, look them in the eye, smile, say, hi, how you doing? Like, that's the level that we're at, right? Most of the people in these companies are white guys who look like you and me. If you see somebody who's black or Latinx, your first thought might be that they're a delivery person or they're some lower status person. Black and Latinx people that I've hired in a companies tell me that People in those companies, after they've started and have been through the engineering interview process, will say, like, oh, are you part of the kitchen staff? Oh, are you on support? Like, what are you doing here? Make the assumption that those people that you're not used to seeing, for whatever reason, could be engineers like you, <laughs> and welcome them and say, like, oh, tell me about what you do. And, like, oh, I'm glad you're here. What's going on? Like, that's the level that we're at. You know, if you do that, like, literally, box made sure that its employees knew that Code 2040 was coming through and smile and say hi. And 50 students wanted to apply to Box. Like nearly, I didn't count exactly, but the whole group wanted to apply to Box. So smiling and saying hi could have a dramatic effect on their diversity numbers. And nine other companies that they visited, all brand name companies, all like big successful Silicon Valley companies, didn't get above that. So what can you do? Smile and say hi. Treat them like people. Ask them what they're doing. Pretty basic stuff. Pretty basic stuff. Then hire them and then promote them <laughs> and then make sure that they can succeed and grow and want to stay. Because like, if we get to the point of having good diversity numbers, then we have to move on to inclusion, which companies like really aren't dealing with yet. If you want a deeper answer than smile and say hi, Project Include has done fantastic work describing all of the many issues that go into these topics, and I highly recommend their site and their their work. It's it's a great document. Okay, Mark, we'll leave it there. Uh, th thanks for coming on the show. It's been fascinating. Oh, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. 
If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.